Hey everybody, Carol here. This is our little moment to say thank you, Patreon supporters, for helping us give everybody the show who needs it for free. Shout out this week goes to Mansui Dejean, Jacob Lofgren, Alexander Hugerhus, Donald Wilson, David Warren, Shelter, Herman A., Emily Lau, and special mention goes to Jan Torkington, Ask Your Husband Why, also Fartful Dodger, thank you very much. If you want to join this amazing group of Patreon supporters, go to smashingsecurity.com forward slash Patreon. Now let's get this show on the road. I know they're robots. They look a little bit like dogs, but you know what they look more like to me is, well, you guys may not know this. Did you ever watch the children's television program Willow the Wisp? Oh, it looks a bit like the Moog. The Moog. It looks like the Moog. Who? Yeah. Copyright man. Smashing Security, episode 206, Robo-Dogs, Deepfakes and Dirty Deceptions, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 206. My name's Graham Cluley. I'm Carol Terrio. And we are joined this week by a special guest, someone who hasn't been on the show before, but may well be known to many of our listeners. It's Financial Times columnist Tim Harford. Hello. Tim, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be on the program and, and bluff as though I know something about security. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> it's so thrilling to have you here because you, I mean, I'm a podcast lover and you do a lot of radio work as well as being a columnist for the Financial Times. I do. Yes. I've got a, an American podcast with Pushkin Industries, the empire of Malcolm Gladwell himself. And that, that podcast <laughs> is called Cautionary Tales. It's all about things going wrong, mishaps, catastrophes, fiascos, some of them hilarious, some of them very, very not hilarious. But in each case, the idea is there's some geeky lesson, there's something to be learned from the stories of uh, of disaster. And some of the disasters are, I think, security adjacent, so con mm-hmm. men and forgers and that sort of thing that I think are potentially of interest. And many of our listeners as well may know you from uh, the Radio 4 show, more or less, of course, where you dig in statistics and uh, try and find the truth from the numbers. Yes, I, indeed, I have a new Radio 4 show as well called How to Vaccinate the World. Uh-huh. It's fantastic. I've listened to it. I just think the work you do is incredible. Really great. Thank you. Oh, you're so kind. You're so kind. No, but I mean it. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starstruck that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm here for a very good reason, which is that I have a book out and therefore, therefore I'm appearing on as, as many podcasts of quality as possible. <laughs> Tell us about your new book. The book is called How to Make the World Add Up. It is a guide to thinking clearly about the world. And my argument is that one of the things that we need to think clearly about the world is numbers, good, solid data. But another thing that we need is to get a handle on our own filters and biases and mental shortcuts. So uh, that's what the book's about. And there is a story in it that I think is relevant to my pick this week. And there's also a story in it that's relevant to to your pick, Carol. So Exciting. Yeah. That'll be excuses to talk about the book every three minutes or so. (laughs) 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, Carol, what is coming up on the show this week? Well, first, let's thank this week's sponsors, Culture AI and LastPass. Their support help us give you this show for free. Now, coming up on today's show, Graham turns his interest to an Air Force base in Florida with an unusual security system. Tim will tell us of a notorious forger. And I have a tricky misinformation dilemma for us all to contemplate. And we have a featured interview with James Moore, the CEO of Culture AI. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, I don't know whether you've ever found yourself in the unusual position of breaking into a military base. Have either of you ever done that? I couldn't possibly comment. Well, yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just last week, Graham, just last week. Yeah, dressed up as a ninja, scaled the walls in order to steal the microfilm. Well, if you were to do that in Florida today, then you might find yourself in something of a sticky pickle because there is an (laughs) Air Force base in Florida which has hired some new security guards to patrol its facility. And they're not using humans. They're not even using geese. They are using robotic dogs. How long before robotic dogs? How long before they have robotic seagulls? They're way worse than dogs because they can fly and shit on you from above, right? <laughs> it, it It's a good point, Kroll, as to why on earth would you choose a dog? Why is the dog the perfect form He's factor? man's, he's supposed to be man's. He's human's best friend, is he not? Is that how he's... I he's think he's man's literature? second best friend, the dog. Let's oh, really? Let's not go into what his best friend is. But it's... it's <laughs> It, but yeah, it, it is an interesting choice, isn't it? Because if you were to try and protect something with an animal, I'm not sure dog is the first thing I would think of when making a robot. I would think of maybe something like an alligator or a what? rhinoceros. Much more terrifying, I would say, than a well, dog. Well, if you live in a swamp, maybe, then you'd have the environment for that said alligator to get around. It is Tyndall Air Force Base in you Florida. You live in Oxford, dude. Well, yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, hey, an alligator or crocodile in Oxford is much scarier, I think, than its natural habitat. It's going to be pretty upset. It would scare you off. Are they dogs, though? I mean, because I know they're robots. They look a little bit like dogs, but you know what they look more like to me mm. is, well, you guys may not know this. Did you ever watch the children's television program Willow the Wisp? Oh, it looks a bit like the Moog. The Moog. It looks like the Moog. Who... <laughs> Do, 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 yeah. do, 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 oh. Copyright, Graham. Yeah, Willow the Wisp with Kenneth Williams. Carol, you have missed out on something culturally huge. I will look it up. Okay. <laughs> they look like the Moog because they they basically <laughs> don't have necks. They don't even really have heads. Um, and the Moog didn't have a head. He had, just had a sort of a face on the end of his body, if I remember rightly. And yeah. these creatures yeah. are just like robo-Moogs, but <laughs> substantially less cute than the Moog. I think you're onto something. I'm kind of surprised you led with dogs when they're actually beheaded, you know? Well, <laughs> which normally makes dogs considerably less scary. They don't even have a tail. They've got a red light bulb at their back. I think that's like <laughs> oh, yeah, the okay, right. stop okay. something driving into them. So it's a bit like a baboon, I suppose. But when I think <laughs> of a dog, I think of something like a Rottweiler or one of those bull terrier things, you know, which is basically a chainsaw 
controlled by something which has a brain the size of a walnut. And I, I think that's, that's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Uh, 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 that kind of dog. Anyway, let's get back to the point. Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. They are one of the first bases to incorporate these semi-autonomous robot dogs into their arsenal. These mechanici... Mechanic... <laughs> these mechanical... <laughs> These mechanical pooches have been developed by a couple of companies. Ghost Robotics are doing the kind of the, the hardware. Mm-hmm. Another company is doing the uh, the augmented reality, and that that company is called Immersive Wisdom. Because what happens is you put immersive your pooches out there. Wisdom. I know. Is the company right. name? Wow. That is the company's name. I yes. like that. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea is they want to free up security officers so that they don't have to patrol the grounds, but. These dogs, if we're going to call them dogs, have 360-degree cameras on them, and they can be monitored remotely by people wearing those sort of VR headsets. So they can see everything that the dog can see, and they can look around. It's almost like they've dressed up as the dog and are going around on all fours. So it's basically CCTV that can walk around and jump around and piss on lampposts. I don't know if it has the ability to expel lubricant like that or not. Um, There are some things that they can do. So the dog's driver, the real human, they can use the speaker built into this robot dog to talk to any intruders and say, I say, what what on earth are you doing here? Should you really be in it? But it seems to me that that's somewhat inefficient because if you see on your camera and you identify that someone shouldn't be there, Mm. Isn't the natural next step to, rather than send humans in to deal with this person who may well run away or put themselves somewhere which the dog will find difficult or the alligator will find difficult to get to, wouldn't it be better if you were, and I can see this happening in the future, to sort of equip these dogs with tasers or something like that instead? Which the security guards could operate. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? It is or just a chainsaw a mouse. Well, right. Or, right. Or <laughs> just, just, yeah, just take the leg off the person in front of you that shouldn't be well, where the, they the are. Trap. Isn't the, the yeah, Wallace the and Gromit has a robo dog <laughs> with a bear trap face? That's what we want. Oh my, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. But no, but Carol, you're right. It's just, it does seem to be just a way of getting a camera to move around. Um, mm. And as such, you wonder. You know, why can't they just put it in a drone? Can't you just right. have several cameras and put them on posts? I mean, it's it's a bit odd. Can you get off your fat, lazy butt and walk around the, the compound, maybe? Well, it's probably quite big. Okay, fair enough. Too much exercise. You have to pay them. You have to give them a 401k. You have to give them salary. You know, you have to look after your staff and all the rest of it. Robot dogs provided their charge. Apparently, they have a range of about seven miles before they have to return to their kennel to be recharged. But maybe over time, they're thinking this actually will be a money saving. Seven miles. So that's like, what, about two hours of walking, I Mm. guess. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking, well, would I be put off by this if I was a criminal breaking into a military establishment? (laughs) You wouldn't be able to put stakes in your pocket, though, and to distract (laughs) them. And a seed ball. Right? There's a lot of things that people need to rethink about how they're going to get to the Air Force Base after this. Well, I'm thinking maybe what I need is a robot cat doing my dirty work for me. And the cat can snoop around and spy and chomp through wires or pee on electricals or whatever I want it to do or take photographs of the secret plans or the plane that they don't want photographed. When are you planning to start working on this cat of yours? Well, I've got a bit of time on my hands at the moment under <laughs> lockdown, so potentially I could. I'm going to start with a robot mouse that will tease your robot cat and oh. kind of 
hit it with irons and ironing boards and just generally get up to all kinds of tomfoolery. <laughs> and that would also disable my robotic elephants, which I was planning, which would be terrified and jump on the table. I'm just going to have the robo-killer hornets and you guys are all screwed. So <laughs> so I think there's a number of concerns here. One is, you know, why is this just for surveillance? Surely, especially it being a military base, they're going to at some point sell a tape on some kind of missile or something. <laughs> water gun. We'll start with a water gun, right? <laughs> The super soaker, something exactly. like that. <laughs> then a Nerf ball. These dogs apparently. So it's it's this whole. Do- there are some amazing videos and news reports of these dogs in action. They've even got pictures of them sort of rolling on their back and being tickled on their tummies. And some of the army officers are sort of patting them like they're a dog. And it's like what? They're headless machines. Do, yeah. Well, don't you think? Don't you think it's interesting that they mimic animals? Do you think that makes it more unsettling or less? Yes. I. I. Okay. So you know that in even in old age homes, they've been trialing out kind of robotic uh, plush toys effectively to try and make some people feel less lonely. And it's worked a treat. So I think there was one in Japan, it was a seal and they would give it to the people in the home and they loved the seal, you know, and they would share it around amongst the users. So I kind I think a face helps you understand it as a being. And I think it confuses the brain a bit, you know, when it has like big eyes and looking at it. So in a way, maybe it's better that it doesn't have a face. It's not pretending to be anything other than a machine, a CCTV camera on four legs. Yeah. I mean, it looks a bit like a server rack, doesn't it? It's kind of like, Mm. you know, it's a, it's a sort of box with, it's very utilitarian and it's very eerie indeed, the way that it, that it moves. Very unsettling. I would run. So it's not just the military who are beginning to use robot dogs. There's a Norwegian oil company which has just put some robot dogs on to patrol its ships on the Norwegian Why? sea. Because people come over and steal oil? Well, no, I don't think it's necessarily to to stop pirates and things like that. I think it's, it's, it's especially in the Norwegian sea, I think it's more about if they're somewhere dangerous where they don't necessarily want humans working. But if they had a device popping around, visiting different things and seeing if anything bad was happening, then that maybe is a better idea. In Japan, they've been really worried about wild bears. So I heard a story earlier this week about... Um, wild bears as opposed to all the tame ones? Well, <laughs> so apparently the bears, the bears are really pissed off, Carol, because there's a lack of acorns and nuts, which they're normally scoffing around on and filling their bellies. Mm-hmm. There's been a real dearth of those lately. So they've been venturing closer to humanity and into farms. And so there is now a robotic monster wolf, which is scaring away the bears. And I've put in a little link. I'll put it in the show notes so people can check it out. I wish you hadn't put that link. It's just, there's some things you can't unsee. I'm not watching. I'm not looking. Well, Carol, let me describe it. If I took a couple of bicycle lamps and a rotating washing line and a Sony Walkman and an old fur coat and mangled them together. You look like my husband. (laughs) (laughs) He he won't listen, right? That's that's what the monster wolf is like. Anyway, I get the feeling that we're going to see more of this. And I, I don't know. It doesn't. On this show, we do tend to be, well, I tend to be a bit of an old fogey. I don't really like technology, and this sort of scares me a bit. You don't think you're sounding a little conspiracy theory on this? No, I just don't. Do you think people should lose sleep over this? The world's just changing too quickly for me, Carol. I'm getting confused by things. Mm -hmm. I'm worried where it's all going to end up. Mm -hmm. Not sure. We'll have this conversation again tomorrow. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll have forgotten. Yes. today. (laughs) Tim, what story have you got for us this week? Well, this is a story that has fascinated me since I first heard it. 
And it's in chapter one of my book, How to Make the World Add Up. And I'm going to make a cautionary tales podcast about it for those people who want to subscribe. The story begins in the 1930s in Monaco, where a charming Dutch lawyer called Gerard Boone shows a painting to the world's leading art critic, who's a gentleman called Abraham Bradius, who is in his 80s and is nobody's fool. He has debunked many a forged artwork. He is an expert on Rembrandt and an expert on Vermeer. And Gerard Boone shows him this painting and says, we think it might be a Vermeer. Can I have your opinion? And Bradius is completely spellbound by this painting. He writes a piece for Burlington magazine, the art magazine, uh, saying, when I first saw this work, I had difficulty controlling my emotion. And it is not only a Vermeer, it is Vermeer's greatest work. And um, anyway, well, you can see where this is going. <laughs> it, it wasn't a Vermeer. It was a rotten fake. It doesn't look like a Vermeer. That's the weird thing. You look at it and you look at a Vermeer and you go, well, I'm, right. I don't know much about art, but those two paintings don't look anything like each oh, other. Oh, really? And it, oh, so it didn't even look like a Vermeer? It didn't look like a Vermeer. It was hardened with industrial plastic. What has um, fascinated me about this story, and what I think is so instructive, is how did Bradius, this incredibly well-respected, incredibly expert guy, how was he fooled by a forgery that wouldn't have fooled me and wouldn't have fooled you? What went wrong? Was he fooled, or did he just get a payoff? Did he uh, not investigate the provenance? Of the paintings. Oh, Graham, you're so excited to say I that like word in an actual <laughs> in, in situ as well. I knew it was coming. Probably. Um, what, what was it? I love Carol's assumption that it's just it's all pure corruption, uh, which is probably a, a, a good go to. But no, what happened was Bradius had a theory, he had a pet theory about Vermeer, mm-hmm. who's this quite a mysterious figure, amazing painter, not that much known about his life. And he had a theory about Vermeer, and there's a gap in Vermeer's work uh-huh. where he didn't. You know, he painted some early paintings, he painted some late paintings. What was he doing in the middle of his life? Where are those paintings? Uh-huh. Who, who influenced those paintings? And he'd written about this. And the forger, who was a, a very clever little man called Han van Meegeren, the forger basically painted a painting that fit Bradius's preconceived ideas of what Vermeer might have been doing, who he might have been imitating. And and it contained all kinds of very subtle clues that I would not notice, you would not notice, but Bradius noticed because Bradius is the world expert. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, there's a, a 17th century vase in the painting. It's a genuine antique. Mm-hmm. It's painted on a 17th century canvas. It uses Vermeer's colour palette, the pigments, the dyes, all perfect. Yeah. Um, all of these things that I wouldn't notice, but Bradius noticed. And because he was able to identify all of these little little pointers, plus this, this was confirmation that he had been right all along, he fell for it. And then once he fell for it, everybody else fell for it because he's Abraham Bradius. Uh, and this links into the sort of social science that I talk about in the book that basically says, if you are motivated to reach a particular conclusion, if, if you want to believe it, being more expert, having more more knowledge, more intelligence, more, more information doesn't help you because you simply deploy all of that intellectual armory exactly. to reach the conclusion you want to reach. Yeah. 
And it's self-fulfilling. It's self, no, but it's self-fulfilling as well from, based on your education because then you can go through and you can go, oh, but you see, I knew that he's using the Zorn palette or I knew that they were using this and I was aware of all these points, therefore it must be right. Yeah. And if someone plays you at your own game, you're screwed. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, well, Graham, you should be blissful. <laughs> ignorance, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Uh, there is a sort of social science literature on this, which, which I describe in the book, that gives people the... Uh, the task of evaluating certain political arguments and on hot button issues like uh, abortion or uh, same sex marriage, um, gun control, it, things that Americans have very, very strong views about. And um, basically, people who have more knowledge about politics are more subject to biases in their reasoning. Mm. Uh, they find it easier to generate ideas that support their own conclusions, harder to generate ideas that support opposing conclusions, because the whole kind of cognitive arsenal is being focused on reaching the conclusion you want to reach. So it's not just about technical expertise. Thinking clearly is is about noticing your own emotional reaction. And Bradius even said, oh, I had difficulty overcoming my emotions. He also said, it doesn't look anything like a Vermeer. <laughs> but it's his greatest but work. But I know I mean, it must he, be. It must be. A, yeah. It was incredible. I Absolutely love it. Incredible. But hang on, Tim. Hang on, because you're you're, you're telling us this story of this chap Han van Meegeren. Yes, the forger. How do we know about this? How how did he get found out? Which presumably he. Well, someone did a test. They found plastic. No, no, no. It's no. better than that. It's an okay, amazing story. So van Meegeren, this all went down in the late thirties. Van yeah. Meegeren was arrested at the end of the Second World War. Okay. He lived in this mansion in Amsterdam, funded by all of these fake Vermeers, because he, he produced I mean, tens of millions of, of dollars worth of these things. Because once you've done one, you, you can produce all these others that look, look similar. And, well, they've got uh, the seal of approval by the, by the art critic of Du Jour. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And he was arrested by two officers from the Allied forces. The war was coming to an end. And they said, well, Mr. Van Meegeren is very awkward. Uh, we have found this treasure trove of stolen Nazi art, and it includes a Vermeer, mm -hmm. and it's, it's Hermann Goering's art collection, Hitler's right hand <laughs> oh man. My God. And it wow. includes a Vermeer, and the, the Germans being Germans kept the receipts, oh. and they say they bought it from you. And so <laughs> Van Meegeren, was, he was up for treason. He could have been hung for that. And uh, so he had to prove that, in fact, he had forged it rather than <laughs> simply obtained it in some other way, <laughs> stolen it and, and sold it to the Nazis. Oh, yeah. I was just conning the Nazis. Yeah, well, this is the <laughs> I'm thing. I'm one of the good it's, guys. It's, that's what he said. So he was able to paint himself as this kind of Robin Hood figure who and the Dutch were sick of the war. They were sick of collaborators. They were ashamed. You know, Anne Frank wasn't the only Jew who was shipped out of um, yeah. out of the Netherlands to the extermination camps. I mean, it's, it's people just wanted a hero. And mm -hmm. here's Van Meegeren, and he's kind of, he's done one over on Hermann Goering. Actually, when you look at the evidence, he was probably a Nazi. And he was certainly very friendly with Nazis and producing all kinds of anti-Semitic work and just a really nasty character. But when he he died... He was the most popular man in the Netherlands, other than the Prime Minister, who bizarrely was extremely popular as well. He was incredibly popular. He was a folk hero hmm. because not only did he sell all these fake Vermeers, but he then sold the story to the Dutch people of this guy who, 
who poked Hermann Goering in the eye. And people Jeez. would rather have believed that than the truth, which is God. a really nasty piece of work. Wow. That is an incredible story, Tim. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah. And you can read more about it in How to Make the World Add Up. <laughs> the book contains other stories. So the, the, the real message here is, you know, even though you might be an expert in a particular topic, and, you know, a lot of people who this show know all about computer security, for instance. Yeah, or, Graham. Oh, well, <laughs> but you can still be fooled if you read something which ticks your boxes or yeah. facilitates some beliefs you already have, then you can be easily lured into thinking you're seeing what they want you to see. Uh, absolutely. The the subtitle of the book is 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. And mm. this is rule number one. And rule number one is notice your emotional reaction. Whenever we see a claim on social media, we see a newspaper headline, very often we'll have an emotional reaction. We'll, we'll be like, oh, that can't be true. Or, oh, this proves I was right. And what I'm mm. saying, you can't overcome that reaction. And, and you shouldn't be trying to suppress your emotions, but mm. you, you should notice them. And if I think if Bradius had been a little bit more aware of his own state of excitement and, and noticed that and thought, hang on a minute, maybe I need to calm down. And of course, we, we all know um, that you know, some security exploits, uh, you know, the, the, I'm not sure what you call it, the human factors hacking, you know, where you're, you're uh, what do you call that? Social engineering. Social engineering, yes. Mm -hmm. That is all about understanding people's emotions and you know, getting people to feel they need to make a decision in a hurry or getting people to, people to feel really comfortable. Manipulating people's emotions is a, is a great way to get them to do something that they will later regret. Well, Carol, talking of things we might regret, let's go, let's go straight to your story right now. Let's, let's um, hear more. <laughs> what, have, what have we got for us? Do you want to try that one? What have you got for us, Graham? <laughs> okay, so I am very, very pleased that, Tim, you're here because, uh, Graham, I rarely admit this publicly, but Graham, you're a smart guy, right? And Tim, you're obviously a very, very smart guy. And I know that just from listening to more or less and being a diehard fan. So I have a dilemma for us all to noodle on. As this butthole of a year nears a close, we are all looking at 2021 with, you know, I don't know, I'd say for me, incredible hope. I don't know if you guys have some diehard wishes for the next year that you're kind of praying come true. Like One of my wishes is that my butthole doesn't close, Corolla. It was a strange sort of <laughs> image which you gave me there. I would rather that anything... Butthole of a year. I, I would rather that, yes, I would rather that 2020 was expelled, yeah. would leave. That'd I pray that you get your car replacement soon so I can have my wheels back. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay, so I have, I've just moved house, so I might be a little bit echoey. And this combined with no longer having access to a car. And so Corolla's very kindly lent me her car. Weeks ago. Weeks. <laughs> yes. Weeks yes. ago, yeah. Well, I'm living sort of out in the wild. Yeah, yeah. anyway, I can't now, wait so. to get it back, right? That's something yeah. I want. Okay. Very, well, <laughs> sooner than it'll, 2021. It'll, yeah, it'll be back soon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, we want a sharp drop in political upheaval. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have, uh, a, you know, a side effect free, affordable a vaccine for the coronavirus pandemic? It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. And maybe even a plan to tackle this onslaught of misinformation. So one vector of misinformation involves the world of computer-generated people. So these are people that have never existed in real life. And so question number one, are these deep fakes? Because it's not of a real person and duping people into 
pretending that they've said something that they haven't. But it's the image of a person. They're still fake images, aren't they? So right. So that way I, I would... Or video, uh, right? Yes. I, yeah. I think it's fair enough to call them deep they are quite strikingly convincing. They are. So, I mean, I just think whether it's trying to pretend to be Jeff Goldblum or it's just a pretty face selling Bitcoin or perfume, um, the idea is that you identify with that person, right? You kind of, that person's helping you uh, believe something or buy something or do something. They're often used by organizations to help us, you know, get things done. And mm -hmm. so one question is, you know, how is that really different from hire an actor to you know, sell your chocolate bar or sell your newspapers. Does, is that, is, is this worse by using these non-people people? We can do it at much cheaper and, and at scale, which I suppose changes. I, I think it was one of those things that Stalin mm. never said, but is supposed to have said that um, quantity has a quality all of its own. <laughs> so the, the, just the yeah. fact that you can mass produce these images that seem to be people is, I'm sure, something that can be... Well, it's certainly worse for the actors as well, isn't it? I mean, put something out Yeah, you can't stand there and smile and hold a yogurt. If you're yeah. being a spokesmodel. So there was even businesses that are selling fake people. Okay, this was in the New York Times. So, quote, this is an article by Kashmir Hill and Jeremy White. So, quote, on the website generated photos, you can buy a unique worry-free fake person for $2.99 <laughs> or a 1,000 people for $1,000. If you just need a couple of fake people for a character in a video game or to make your company website appear more diverse, you can get their photos for free on thispersondoesnotexist.com. Hey, and if you want that your, your fake person animated, a company called Rosebud AI can do that and even make them talk. So oh, the idea that you're going to, uh, oh, our company is just a bunch of white guys. Can we have some, can we have some brown faces? Can we have some women in there? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but we don't, we don't actually have them, so we're just going to fake them. <laughs> just, just. So this is, I wanted to give you this. So the New York Times have up this interactive uh, tool, which is quite fun, but I think it'll just show you how far we've come in, what, two years in this front? So if you take a click on that link. Yeah, this is the link in the show notes. Yeah, the link in the show notes. So if you scroll down, you'll see, you'll see a number of faces, and you'll oh, see wow. there's a scroll bar. So you can change genders. You can change race and ethnicity. You can change a person's perspective, how they're, where they're looking in the picture, a mood, their age, their eyes. It's shocking. Oh, this mood thing is, oh, that'd Isn't be quite handy scary? in real life, actually. Yes. When, <laughs> sometimes on stop scowling. Just, I do agree. There you are. That's a bit happier. Next time we're on YouTube. <laughs> it also has some clever advice as to weird ways to, to spot the fakes so for example there's a guy i'm looking at who looks very convincing except that one hinge on his spectacles is different yes. from the hinge on the other side of his spectacles and there's a la there's yes. a lady with with two odd earrings and it's that sort of thing that yeah yeah the 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 kind of the deep learning as i am i i'm just an economist what do i know but the the the, the way that we're the just podcasters works. we don't know anything either <laughs> <laughs> i would quite like to upload my own photograph here and then be able to change my age, my eyes, my mood, because quite often, you know, what to be what? Well, you know, what, it's what like you go oh, for. I'd, I'd I'd quite like to have. Can, can I have a, a photograph where I'm actually smiling nicely, and then I could adjust the dial, or if I could 
change, you know, if I could take off a couple of years or something or make my eyes slightly larger, then it might be quite my eyebrows slightly less bushy. That'd be yeah. quite, it would be quite a fun thing to do. And oh my goodness, I can change my gender. Look at that. You could just not, go get plastic surgery. That already exists if you're really oh, concerned just, about these things. I thought it'd be easier with a scroll. There's a really, <laughs> really easy way to take a few years off, which is to use an old photo. This is what we journalists do. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that hard. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pivot here. I'm going to pivot here. Have you guys heard of the term, the liar's dividend? Uh, um, it rings a vague bell, but, but remind us. The gist of it is this, okay, so the mere existence of a conspiracy theory, say, mm -hmm. gives more credibility to the believers or for the believers to cling to. It's a hard sentence to say. But so where, where it's unclear what's real and what's fake, the fact that people are simply aware that there's misinformation floating around actually benefits those that create and spread fake information. Give, give us an example, Crow. Dream up a dream up a scenario, and then we'll. we'll no, understand. no, okay, okay, okay. So, so let's say I was talking to someone, mm. and they were saying that the royal family were blood drinking, flesh eating, shape shifting, extraterrestrial, reptilian things in human form. Yeah, but what would be the conspiracy theory? In that case? <laughs> and and let's say let's say I question that idea, like right. Um, really, right, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the liar's dividend says that I'm actually attributing more credibility by simply being aware of the concept of li this lizard elite oh, conspiracy I theory. I see. Just the mere existence of this crazy theory. That I know about it and that I, right. I go to go, I don't believe that because you don't, you can't believe your eyes anymore. We just saw that on the New York Times article, right? We can't believe our eyes. We don't know if those are real people or not real people. So no one is going to think, for instance, that, I don't know, the Prince of Wales has one of those space hoppers up tucked up at the front of his shirt and has done for the last 14 years because no one has ever heard that theory from me before. But once it's been said, then it becomes a little bit more believable or similar conspiracy theories might be believable. That's that's the sort of principle of what you're saying, the liar's dividend. I don't know if it's it's related to something that worries me or whether it's a subtly different point. But what, what worries me is not so much that... Uh, you will be fooled by a deep fake, but the the fact that everybody knows deep fakes exist means that you can now mm. do something on film and then plausibly claim yeah that it that it wasn't you it was a deep yeah. fake so you think about uh, the the access Hollywood tape that uh, that came out just before the uh, 2016 presidential election and and doomed. Donald Trump's uh, chances of of getting the presidency, remember, and and uh, and the, the pussy grabbing one. Yeah, he yeah. might have become president if yeah. it hadn't been for that, wasn't it? That he was really, really he, yeah. <laughs> could actually, yeah. have had Donald Trump as president for Gosh, four years if imagine? it hadn't been for the release of that yeah. tape. But if that came out now, um, Trump would just yeah. be able to say. Fake well, that's, news. That's not my. That's not my voice on the tape. It's fake news. Um, at the time, that you know, there wasn't. There wasn't enough currency around the idea that you could fake an audio recording. I mean, you can, you can fake an audio recording, mm. you can fake photos. Um, but it, it's it's not so much, oh, people will be fooled by by these deep fakes. It's the idea that people won't believe things that they should believe. Um, exactly. Because the deep fakes create deniability. And I, there is, even before we get to Van Meegeren in my book, the very the, the introduction of the book, 
talks about a, a very famous statistical book called How to Lie with Statistics, probably the most famous book about statistics ever written. And uh, it's a very witty kind of debunking of all kinds of statistical misinformation and all the different ways that people will fool you. The argument I make is actually this might not be that helpful, even though everything this guy, Daryl Huff, the author of this book, even though everything he's saying is correct, the fact that, it's, that all the emphasis is on misinformation and there's no mm. acknowledgement that you might use statistics to actually figure something out or tell something true about the world, that's corrosive. And in fact, Daryl Huff ended up uh, using stories from his book to shill for big tobacco and to try to attack the epidemiologists who were arguing that um, smoking is quite likely to give you lung cancer. And he deployed the same ideas in his book to say, well, you know, you can't really, you can't really believe all this kind of, all these medical statisticians. Uh, we've had enough of experts. Took us to a very, very dark place. And, and I think the deep fakes are a similar thing. It's not, we'll, we'll believe stuff we shouldn't. It's that we'll refuse to believe stuff that we should. Exactly. Perfect segue. So this is where, in my view, things get a little sticky. So there's experts like uh, like you, Graham, and you, Tim, and academics and technologists and journalists all around the world that have been advocating that the general public learn about misinformation and deepfakes to make sure that they're forearmed or better armed against malicious use of these types right. of communications. But have we all been duped? Right? Could it be that the more that we talk about it, the more validity we give to nonsense because we're basically saying it exists? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something I worry about a lot. So well well done for talking about it on the podcast, Carol. <laughs> Sorry, was that you telling me how smart I was? Sorry. <laughs> I didn't hear that, Graham. <laughs> I said well done for talking about this on the podcast. That's <laughs> well, it just seems to me if people can't believe their eyes anymore, maybe it comes down to who believes it more, right? Whoever believes more is the winner of whatever said argument. So for me, I think it comes down to people have to be willing to put in that little bit of extra work to show a little bit more curiosity, um, not just reflexively believe or disbelieve the first thing they see, to, to retweet, to like, to share, based on their emotional affiliation with what they're seeing they have to go well, hang on what's what's going on what's going on behind this and ask a few extra questions get it get a second opinion and if we're not if we're not really interested enough in the world to do that then you know we've we've got problems but i i don't know if you've seen people in these kind of emotional fervors i totally understand what you mean i have seen people that i would say categorically are very sound mind sound reasoning people and when 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 they're caught by the bug, it is really hard. Yeah. Like, I mean, they don't even, you know, like when they'll show me something and I'll go and just do a tiny bit of Googling, I can find mm. debunking immediately. Mm. And these are these are smart people that I think under normal circumstances would go and double check. But somehow there's been some pre, like maybe the person who said it has been pre-vetted by them as someone worthy of trust. Yeah. Or something something there's something weird that happens but it's it's very frightening. I've seen it in my own circles and it's it's shocking and and it may be happening to me. That's the other thing. Like I'm you know like how do I know, right? I'm an emotional being. Yeah, no we're all emotional. Maybe you need someone crawl all the time to make you question yourself. Someone who will say are you, are you sure about that crawl? Are you sure you got that right? 
Maybe well, I just think I just need to believe friend. more. So I just really, really believe I'm the funniest person here, Graham. I'm really, really funny. I'm funnier, funnier than you. Definitely, very funny. I believe it from the bottom of my heart. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Security training sucks. It's boring. Users hate it. They aren't paying attention. Doesn't work. For security training to actually work, you'd have to find out what each person in the company is doing that's risky. Send them phishing emails, monitor logs, check for passwords and have I been pwned. And then you'd have to train them in a way that doesn't send them to sleep, try and track what they're doing to see if it worked. Who's got time for any of that? Culture AI do. What? Culture AI. They make this amazing software that plugs into your company, runs your phishing campaigns, integrates with Slack, tests if your users accept phony MFA requests, that's a biggie, and pulls in tons of other behavioral metrics from your existing apps. It basically figures out what everyone needs to know and then creates personalized training that is not boring. And it even checks that it's working. And it's all done automagically. Hmm. And they've got a deal just for our listeners. Sign up at culture.ai slash smashing and your first 50 employees are free for life. Cool. More information, culture.ai slash smashing. Stop your whining, Graham. (laughs) This episode of Smashing Security is sponsored by LastPass. Now, everyone knows about LastPass's password manager for end users, but it's also a great solution for businesses. In fact, tens of thousands of companies rely upon LastPass to protect themselves. LastPass Enterprise simplifies password management for companies of all sizes and helps you secure your workforce. So whatever the size of your business, go and check it out. Go and visit lastpass.com slash smashing to find out more. And thanks to LastPass for supporting the show. And welcome back. Can you join us on our favourite part of the show? The part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security-related necessarily. Better not be. And my Pick of the Week this week is not security-related. I discovered that uh, the Ravensbourne University in London, who I think are based in Greenwich, they have done something rather remarkable uh, in coordination with the BBC, and they have created something called the BBC Motion Graphics Archive. And you may be wondering, well, what is the BBC Motion Graphics Archive? I am wondering. Well, it is an online resource where you can look up TV title sequences that you may have long forgotten a few you may remember dating back to the 1940s up until the present day. The thing which seems to connect all of these um, title sequences is that they largely involve some sort of graphical element. So I've, d- I've done a quick perusal, um, and, and there's some marvellous old things, things which you won't find up on YouTube, but you're able no, to download. No, it's really cool, actually, Graham. And they have quite often... Uh, quite a lot of detail regarding the thinking behind the title sequence and the design. And I found this quite an enjoyable. So there's all kinds of shows I looked up. I found um, Emu's Broadcasting Company uh, from back in the 70s. I enjoyed that. Um, I, Claudius, one of my favourites. Discovering Portuguese. Um, wasn't a show I watched regularly, but I was interested to think, <laughs> read about the thinking See, behind it. This exists because people took a punt in the old days. They thought, you know what? I think Auntie, the inside story of the BBC is what we need to put out. Who cares what the viewership is? Let's just try. You know, more anti-bloomers, for example, is another one. Well, well we, we, <laughs> I, mean, I, I love the idea that you can just see, 
So these are kind of the the title. This this is the like the music and the and the whatever yes. would have been shown at the beginning of a show. Yeah, love it. They're, they're quite often like twenty twenty five seconds or so. They're not all very long, and I love the fact that these have been preserved and now they're available digitally yeah. to everybody. And um, so, what's your favourite, Graham? Oh. What's the best title sequence ever? Well, I'm the answer, Graham, is I haven't seen them all. Okay, that's the answer. Obviously. <laughs> That is a smart answer. I I am a huge fan of Doctor Who, and uh, this week was, of course, the 57th anniversary of Doctor Who. And I have to say, although I don't think it's up on this archive, the original 1963 Doctor Who title sequence, which was done in a remarkable way through a howl-around technique of having a camera pointing at its own monitor and basically picking up the, the feedback and the weird distortion, I think that was a remarkable um, title sequence for way, way back then. So I have to say Doctor Who, but uh, there's some there's some other crackers. I'll tell you what I found wasn't in there, though, um, was Willow the Wisp. I just did a quick look and not to be found. Oh, dear. Very disappointing. That's a blow. That is a blow. Well, um, maybe they'll expand it. For me, Box of Delights from, from the early 80s. Box <laughs> You're of Delights, connected, an amazing Tim. title yeah. sequence. Yeah, put in a word, Tim. Put in a word. Tim, what's your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week is a New Yorker article mm. by Cal Newport titled The Rise and Fall of Getting Things Done. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a productivity geek, and I like Cal Newport's books on this, uh, particularly his book Digital Minimalism. But I also like David Allen's Productivity Bible, Getting Things Done. And so I was interested to see Cal reflecting on GTD. Uh, and in the New Yorker of all places, and the, mm. the so there's lots to enjoy about the the piece. But what he really gets you thinking about is, at what point did it become, you know, your problem, my problem, to be productive, versus a, a sort of systemic problem uh, in manufacturing. Uh, the getting you know being productive was regarded as a like as a system thing like a, fa- a factory has to be productive a production line an assembly line has to be productive we need to get our our processes all sorted um and cal says the same true for programming but for a lot of a lot of knowledge work it's all just well you know everything goes to email and we'll figure it out and it's all very ad hoc and if that feels very stressful and it, everyone feels overwhelmed that's an individual problem to sort out rather than a system problem. And that's what he's questioning and getting us to try and rethink. Because I, I mean, I don't know, I grew up certainly in a household that had to be busy all the time. You know, you were, if you weren't doing, if you weren't doing something, you mm. were wasting time, you know, it was always, what are you doing? What are you doing now? So I don't know if that was of the time in the 70s, 80s, and it's just kind of come through a generation. But, uh, it's well, I mean, I don't mind being busy. I'm, I'm, I tend to feel I have to be doing something useful, which is probably, uh, you know, I probably need some kind of therapy about that. But um, <laughs> the problem with email, though, is, you know, the answer to the question, what are you doing now, could always be, well, I'm just going to do some email. Yeah. There's always more email. And maybe that's not really a very good way of getting stuff done. Oh, it totally isn't. I, I just don't do it. <laughs> are you on social media? Do you, what, how, how have you minimized your digital sphere? Uh, I am uh, not on Facebook in a serious way. Uh, I decided it was too much hassle to delete my Facebook account. And I do have a, 
I'll, I'll do it for you, Tim, if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I don't check Facebook more than, and then maybe once every three weeks, I'll pop on for five minutes mm-hmm. and pop off again because nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I have a <laughs> sort of a, a, a automatic posting of, of stuff from my blog will go to a Facebook page, but I don't have anything to do with that. And Twitter, I um, am on less than people might think. So I will pop up and I will put some links to my articles and various other things and they'll disappear again. Um, I don't find it... I mean, I've got about 160, 170,000 Twitter followers. Show off. <laughs> but, like, but, but I don't... Yeah, I don't like Twitter. And so and no, I, I am why. slightly, I do, I have these kind of mixed feelings of, well, you know, I can reach us, I can reach the population of, a, of my hometown every time, every time I want to. Um, but do I want to? I think I probably want to do some real work. Yeah. So, but what do you, weird. I mean, a lot of people do those things though, to kind of uh, unwind, I guess. Right. And, but I don't think it actually unwinds anyone really. Twitter certainly doesn't unwind me. No. That's the, the irony of the whole thing. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've no, certainly I, put I, a lot of time in building filters and rules on my email client to try and put emails which I think are less important or people I interact with less often into different folders, try and triage that kind of thing, so that I've got time to uh, sp- spend perusing the BBC Motion Graphics archive. Because <laughs> that's real work, in my view. That That's how I'm going to unwind, is that, watching those title work. sequences. That's the deep work. <laughs> Carole, what's your pick of the week? Okay. You're going to give me some stick for this, okay? But as some of you know, I host other podcasts, one of them being the Brand Spanking New Sticky Pickles, a hilarious weekly <laughs> podcast. How many weeks have you <laughs> We've promoted been going eight Sticky weeks, Pickles okay? on Smashing and Security? <laughs> it's been eight weeks, okay? And the whole idea is that, you know, each host drops a tangle of a situation and we try to wiggle out and find the best course of action. Couldn't you just sponsor Smashing Security if you want to promote your <laughs> podcast I don't every need single to. week? It's half okay. mine, baby cakes. Now, <laughs> Sticky has enjoyed more than 5,000 downloads, which isn't bad for a silly pandemic project, oh, I right. think. Okay, well done. Thank you very much. Yeah. And um, But we've suffered, Sticky Pickles has suffered its very own Sticky Pickle. Oh. Because after eight episodes, my wonderful co-host, Anna Brading, had to bow out. And she said it was because she was having a baby, but it's probably because she has issues <laughs> with me. Do you believe that? <laughs> I don't. I don't because it's a pandemic and I can't see her. <laughs> so I think it's all a lie. I feel, <laughs> I feel dumped, kicked to the curb. It's not you, it's me. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so what do I do now, right? Do I stop and let it float away into nothingness? Or do I scramble like a little bug and get a shit hot replacement? Oh. And I got someone amazing. All right. So Smashing Security favorite Maria Farmazis is my pick of the week this week. Oh, She's my agreed. She has agreed to come in and be a co-host with me for some of the Sticky Pickles. Was your pick of the week just one long advert for your own podcast? Yes. Good. Learn from oh. learn from me, Tim. Learn. No, from don't worry. Me. I think I think I already did that. So that's. Fine. <laughs> I learned from you. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> anyway, this past Sunday we recorded season two, episode one, which is scheduled to drop tonight, Thursday at midnight, and it. I just edited it, and it sounds awesome. So check it out. And your podcast is called uh, Picking Stickles. Is that right? <laughs> Sticky Pickles. It's an excellent name for a podcast. Come on. With the lovely Maria. So, Maria, you are shameless. my pick of the week. <laughs> oh, wow. My goodness. Um, now, Carol, I, I heard you uh, spend some time chatting with James Moore from Culture AI. 
I did. We had a really interesting talk. So check it out. So Mr. James Moore, CEO of Culture.ai, welcome to Smashing Security. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, we uh, we haven't met before, though I hope one day we actually can do in, in, in real life. Be nice. Uh, as I was preparing for today, I read your bio and I really liked it. So I want to read it out here to start this off. So it says... Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> it says, James Moore is the founder and CEO of the Human centric cybersecurity company, Culture AI. He's allergic to traditional awareness training and has a passion for finding new ways to empower people and keep their organizations secure. Now, I've been living security awareness for donkey's years, and I am so thrilled that you're here because you might be able to give me a fresh perspective on things. So uh, let's go back. Let's talk about you first. So what led you to actually start Culture AI? Uh, I started life as a, as a pen tester, right? And I think every pen tester goes through this this journey of realization that you know you start out testing web apps and then mobile apps and you do a bit of social engineering and then you you land your first red team job um, and you get in and you think oh that's amazing I've got in and then you do the you do the next red team job and you get in again. So like the boss might want to say, let's see if you can break into our super solid defenses. And your job is to act like a like a bad guy and try and break yeah. in and then give them a report. Okay, got you. Yeah, exactly. 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 And I think you, you do your, your 10th or your 20th or your 30th and you kind of go, well, I get in every time. This is, this is insane. Um, <laughs> and I think it doesn't matter how many blinky boxes, right? Either get installed on, on networks. I've had so many, so many clients go, oh, well, we, we think you'll get captured or caught because we've got this blinky box and it never, it never quite works out like that. You know, sometimes that slows us down a little bit. But you know what? Pen testers, they all have stories, right? Like they're, you're the best dinner party guests in the old world <laughs> when we were allowed to have dinner parties. <laughs> you must have a good one you can share with us. Well, so I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got a good, a good one, which I'm going to get killed for, for bringing, for bringing up. Um, on, we won't tell. We won't tell. So, I mean, I did a, I did a, I did a conference a while back. Uh, several hundred, hundred people watching, um, stood up live in front of an audience and kind of said, look, every time I do a red team, it's human behavior that, that lets me into a, into an organization, typically phishing. And it's normally something that people do that let me move around that network. So mm-hmm. I'm that confident that people typically fall for things like email phishing that I'm going to stand up in front of everybody and fish my own my own mother which you know is I think it's a little bit taboo I, I think doing, doing <laughs> well, it probably wasn't the best the best maneuver and it's it certainly damaged relationships for a little bit of time but <laughs> um, um, we made it look like it had come from something to do with with her work rather and she and she fell for it there was there was this really awkward moment actually when we when we did the um, when we launched the attack because I had the stats up live on screen behind me. And for the first minute and a half, nothing happened. And we sent it to about, I think about 15 people inside our company, including her. Um, and nothing happened for about a minute and a half. So I sat there, I stood there thinking, panicking. oh my God, what? Yep. Yeah, panicking. What happens if nothing happens? Anyway, she fell for it. A few other people fell for it. The, the worst part of that for me was actually not the fact she fell for it. We, we captured her, um, a password as part of the attack. Um, and we masked the password on screen so we couldn't see what it was. And everybody wanted to know what the password was. And I'm just stood there thinking, I've got my mum's password. Do I really want to see this? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could be something terrible. It um, could be. Could be like, James is a dick for trying to fish me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could, have been, it could have been anything. Absolutely anything. Anyway. We, we, we revealed it and it was worse than anything. I think it was, it was either password exclamation mark or password one. It was one of the two. <gasps> oh, but I remember, no. 
I know it was so it was so bad, but I remember the conversation with her off the back of it. And I said that I was talking to her about it. She goes, Well, what I don't think you understand, James, about this security thing is hackers would never guess that. And I said, What do you mean they're never gonna guess password exclamation mark? And she's like, Well, it had a capital P. I was like, Oh my god, this is not how <laughs> <laughs> it's not how the world works, mother. That um, is a great story. But you know what? Your mom is not alone. Listen, you know, we all have family members that are exactly, exactly the same. So no big deal. Okay. So what led you to Culture AI then from that exciting life? Well, so I, I started out initially, I kind of said, well, I'd like to solve the email problem. Because what you just said is absolutely right. A lot of kind of end users that aren't exposed to the kind of the security world think similarly um, and mm. rightly, rightly so. So I kind of said, well, I, I kind of want to try and fix that. So I kind of said, well, why don't we start doing simulated phishing attacks against people? So I founded a, a company called Fished. Um, uh, but I did that for um, between 2014 and 2018. And we we saw a lot of success with what we were doing, right? We I think the the, the biggest insight that we got from that was that where we were able to personalize kind of the education that we were sending and the campaigns we sent to people to those people as individuals, we got really good results at changing behavior. And we, I've always said that people all behave differently for different reasons, right? The reason that somebody clicks on a phishing email will differ between people. Some people it'll be an awareness thing or some people will be an attitude thing. And you can break that down some further and say that. Some people coupon voucher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be anything. That really frustrated me with, with with fish that we got good results, but we were only focused on email phishing and we didn't collect a huge amount of data around kind of mm. why people were behaving the way we're behaving. So we couldn't really we couldn't tailor things enough to users. So I kind of we sold we sold fish in twenty eighteen to uh, to F Secure. Right, great company, awesome company, yeah, awesome yep. company. I mean, they do some do some amazing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of took a took a step back and said, well. Knowing what I know now, could I could I go back and build something a bit a bit different, right? And I kind of said, well, we're at a time where there's a lot of there's a lot of companies out there that are investing quite heavily in cloud. So there's there's lots of different apps that be that are being used as well as kind of existing infrastructure. A lot more companies are open to this concept of doing kind of attack simulations. So I kind of said, well, can we not just build something that aggregates all this data from lots of different sources and turns that into some kind of almost behavioral insight? So what are the things that our employees are doing way beyond just email phishing that, that are putting the company at risk? Can we can we use that that data and that info to, to try and change behavior and deliver, you know, let's forget this generic security awareness training rubbish that everybody's been been doing. Can we can we actually start to to personalize training and nudges and you know content and deliver it down different channels and things? And um the answer was was yeah, we we can. And we kind of looked at it and said, why is why has this not been done before? But I think the I think the problem is everybody's just been wanting to push out easy, boring, generic awareness training. Tried and tested, maybe, but just to a level, not actually pushing the envelope. Yeah. Exactly. And then everybody's frustrated when they don't get good results with it. And they kind of go, oh, this awareness training stuff's a load of rubbish, which, you know, it is. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we went with Culture AI. We, we tried to do something a little bit a little bit different, I guess. You must encounter occasionally organizations that they're talking with you or whatever. You're hearing this kind of blame attitude, like the users are always the, my, the bane of my life. They cause all the problems. and Yeah. So, I mean, we see this all the time. Um, we, we quite often hear the phrase, um, you know, the, the humans or the people or the users are the weakest link. Um, and then we hear the the opposite, which is people saying we're trying to turn humans into kind of the human firewall. Um, I think somewhere somewhere between the two, but further along to the human firewall side, right? I think human firewall is a bit of a weird phrase, and it puts an unrealistic expectation on on users. But I think what organisations need to need to do is kind of say, well, 
they're people. Let's treat them as as people. Let's see how we can support them. And just because they've fallen on a they've they've clicked a link on a phishing email, it doesn't mean we should immediately fire them. We should look at well, how do we support them and and help them? And you know, you might have a user that's really good at um, at spotting phishing emails, but they set weak passwords or they post stuff online that is quite you know quite sensitive. Or there's they they allow tailgating. There's lots of different behaviors that people struggle with. And for me, it's about supporting and kind of empowering those users rather than you know, rather than almost damaging their relationship with the security teams by shouting at them, that's not that's not what security should be about. It's it's always you, know, you speak to a lot of CISOs, and they always want they, they always say they want to come across as enabling the business. And I think that historically, a lot of security teams have come across as blockers. I'm and one of those one of those reasons is people are, are scared of them, especially when they're doing simulated phishing campaigns and things like that. Yeah. So companies out there, um, is there specific areas that you might recommend they actually focus on in terms of security awareness training? Yeah. So I think, I mean, email phishing, right, is the obvious one. Um, a lot of companies yeah. are already doing it. They could be doing it better in a lot of cases. Um, but email phishing is definitely something that, that companies should be measuring and, and should be improving. Um, SMS phishing is a, is another one there. You know, they're, they're two pretty easy ones to measure. Another one though, that's kind of, it's a bit more recent, and we're we're actually about to do a white paper on this because some of the results we've got are quite well. I say quite; they're very, very interesting. Is multi-factor authentication? So we've found, and we've we've recently put in the functionality in the platform to issue things like push notifications um, to imitate. You know, if somebody signs into um, into a, an application, they get a push notification to say, "Did you sign into this? Yes, accept." Okay, it logs you in. Yeah. Um, we've actually put in the functionality to imitate that, so users get. Um, a seemingly legitimate push notification that they didn't initiate. And we found that over half of the people that we've tested with that have, have accepted. They've, they've yeah. just gone, okay, I'm used to seeing this. I'm going to hit accept, which completely negates the use of multi-factor authentication because if a real attacker did it, the, the user would go, okay, well, yeah, I, I just accept and let the attacker in. Um, which is really scary. Yeah, but I can also now see how that happens because it happened to me the other day with my my other half. We run a company. He was doing some of our accounts. I'm the principal owner of the email account. I had my phone with me. So I assumed he was doing it and then pressed OK and let him through. And then suddenly I thought, my God, what if he wasn't him? Now I called him and it turned out to be him, but I literally just went through it because I, I made it make sense in my head without double checking. Yeah, exactly. We're, mm-hmm. we're so used to it. And we have this, we have this concept of system one and system two behavior. And system two is typically where you kind of, you stop and you think about something and system one is kind of autonomous. And it's it, essentially when somebody clicks on a link in a phishing email, that's normally system one behavior that's causing that. And it's a very similar thing because you immediately get the notification and you're just so used to going, okay, accept. You don't stop and think. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually when the, um, when the team at Inside Culture AI built this into the platform, the first person they targeted with it was me. And I, didn't, I didn't know it was coming up. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Um, and the only reason I spotted it was um, I was actually coming out of the gym at the time, which is a small miracle because the you know I'm very rarely near the near the gym. <laughs> uh, so, so I spotted it coming out of the gym, and I thought that's really weird because I it's for VPN and I'm not near my laptop. That's very strange. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the only reason I spotted it. And I think when we started to test test clients with this, we're seeing seeing similar stories. Um, yeah. So it's that, that's the kind of stuff that we're setting out to measure. And I think a lot of organizations should definitely focus on, on MFA. Um, cause I just yeah. think there's, there's some hidden stats there, but a lot of companies are looking at MFA at the moment and going, Oh, this could be not the silver bullet, but it's, it will have a big impact in terms of reducing the effect of phishing. And I suspect maybe it, it you know, it doesn't have quite as big an effect as a lot of places are, are hoping. 
Um, so that's a big one. Now, what about home users? We do have a few of them that listen to the show as well. So today, uh, uh, the day that we uh, published this uh, show, it was Thanksgiving in the United States and Christmas is just around the corner for many of us. So any any tips for us users? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Thanksgiving, Christmas um, in particular, the the kind of the increase in delivery based um, email phishing attacks goes up through the reef. So we see we see quite a lot of users will get targeted by um, attacks or emails that will say your shipping for such and such gift has been delayed or your Amazon order um, requires you to update your payment details or, you know, attackers know people are expecting deliveries around this time of year and they really, really look to exploit that. So there's kind of one big tip that we can give this time of year is to is to watch out for for emails that you may even feel like you were expecting and just double check them, make sure that it is Amazon or it is the other, that other website you've ordered off um, that's sending you that email. Um, look at the link really carefully. And again, don't just kind of click without, without thinking. Um, I think that's really important. Okay. And now your, your company name is Culture AI and AI as a term in our industry, at least is sometimes, um, causing a little bit of confusion because people are going, well, actually, there is no AI and AI doesn't exist. And it's really just algorithms. And, and what do you think about that? What is, what are your thoughts on actually using that name inside your company name? And yeah, I think it's a really good one. Um, and to an extent, I think we, Maybe we don't regret putting AI in our name, but I think there's there's a real risk that people just kind of go, oh, are they using it as kind of a buzzword? Because I, I think that happens so much. For us, the, the the kind of the phrase AI is not about, you know, kind of 100% um, kind of replication of a human mind inside of a computer. It's, the, it's about the, the ability to make um, very, very good predictions based on data. So we use machine learning um, to basically try and make predictions around how and why people are behaving the way they're behaving so that we can work out what the what the best type of training and the best messages are to give to that individual individual user at scale. You know, the AI side for us is machine learning. It's using machine learning to, to make predictions based on the data we're getting. And those predictions allow us to, to a reasonably high degree of accuracy, predict how a user is likely to behave based on data we've got about them and why they're doing it so that we can tailor training better than, than we could if we were just using a, a traditional kind of if else statement. Brilliant. Well, James Moore, thank you so, so much for sharing all this. I'm excited to see how uh, this can change the landscape because people often complain about security awareness training and being able to tailor it might make it a heck of a lot more useful and interesting to people because they feel that actually talking their language. So anyone who uh, would like to learn more about Culture AI, they've actually uh, created a whole page just for Smashing Security listeners. So you can see that at culture.ai slash smashing. Plus, they have a deal just for Smashing Security listeners. Sign up at culture.ai forward slash smashing and get your first 50 employees for free for life. Can't beat that. James Moore, everybody, CEO and founder of Culture AI. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Fantastic. Marvellous. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online or find out more about your new book. Or, or, yeah, buy your book. Or Cautionary yeah. Tales podcast. What is the best way for folks to find out all about that kind of stuff? The the single place to find out is my website, timharford.com. The, the book is called How to Make the World Add Up. 
terrific. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G, Twitter wouldn't last to have a G. And also join the Smash Insecurity subreddit. And don't forget, if you want to be sure never to miss another episode, subscribe in your favourite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Pocket Casts. Huge, huge thank yous to all of you for listening to us each week. We hope we've eased the horror that is 2020 at least a teeny bit this week. Of course, high five to this week's Smashing Security sponsors, Culture AI and LastPass. And of course, huge thank yous to our Patreon supporters. Your support makes Smashing Security free for all. Check out smashingsecurity.com for past episodes, sponsorship details, and information on how to get in touch with us. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. How do you feel, Tim? It's great. Uh, that was really good fun. That was really good oh, fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Full hour of your time means the world. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Ha- have you ever thought of writing a book or anything like that? <laughs> and if you did, what would you call it? How to make the world? Oh, I can't think. What, what, what should it? What should it be? That How to should make be, the that, world? That, yeah, something. Mm. We're getting. We're getting there somewhere. We're getting yeah, there. yeah. It's something. How to make the world add up? It's already in my basket.